Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on the impeachment inquiry and Jack Smith goes to the Supreme Court. By the way, for some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast an Andy McCarthy, the glowing, indeed gushing five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good, Andy. I'm uh, glad to be back. Jack Butler filled in manfully while I was uh, uh, in, in the hospital briefly for pneumonia. I had pneumonia oh. when I was out of the hospital for a while and actually discussed it with you on this uh, podcast like two weeks ago. And you're like, Rich, you really got to take it easy. And I was like, no, I'm on the Andy McCarthy plan. I take it easy the way you do, Andy, working through <laughs> vacations, working through illness. And the next thing I do, I text you, Andy. I'm in room 636 at <laughs> the local hospital. Yeah, the week after you're out ice skating, which is yeah. exactly what you, that's what you want to be doing with pneumonia. That was great. Yeah, well, I'm feeling better. Uh, I got yeah. great, great, uh, great care and uh, all was good and glad, glad Jack filled in so well. So let's uh, go to this impeachment inquiry authorization. Been uh, a little, took some time to line up these votes several months, but Kevin McCarthy promised that he would actually pass it. He didn't actually pass it himself, but uh, his successor, Mike Johnson, did. So let's go big picture, as is our want, and then dive in. Well, it certainly is, as we said in the editorial on this today, it's a, it's a victory for Johnson. And I'll tell you, I mean, we're going to get into this a little bit more, but I think he needs one because I think he's um, – I like Johnson, so I want to preface it with that, but I think he's mishandled a couple of things, particularly with uh, um, the FISA stuff where I think he, he couldn't figure out where he wanted to come out. So on this one, I think they needed a win. It would have been better to get a win earlier than they got it, but but he got it. And this is no small thing because not only do they have this narrow majority, it's getting narrower, right? They lost uh, Santos. Uh, they're going to lose McCarthy after uh, after the end of the year. So he doesn't have a lot of margin for error, but he not only, you know, I kept hearing all day yesterday, I was on a lot of the coverage of Fox because it was such a crazy day yesterday. And I heard all day that, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes, but, uh, you know, he can only afford to lose three and he got everybody. So it was a, you know, to that extent, it was a, it was a good job. And just to, just so people understand what the challenge is here, I, I, my understanding is that there are 17 Republican Congress critters who hold seats in districts that Biden won in 2020. Um, so an impeachment vote, even though it's not a vote to impeach, it's only a vote to inquire, uh, which, which means to investigate is still a tough vote for them uh, in their in their districts. Although I guess, Rich, I, I would ask you, do you think that like obviously McCarthy didn't want to put these guys to the to the test um, because it was such an uncomfortable vote for them? I wonder if uh, part of the reason that Johnson at this point, like three months or so later, is able to get it over the goal line is because Biden's crashing. Even in you know, even in those Biden districts, uh, because it's it's 
interesting to go from like not taking a vote, even though it was very embarrassing to not take a vote when you're because of those 17 to not only, you know, here we are not only getting it, but actually getting every single Republican mm -hmm. on board. Yeah, that that might have played it into it. Just, you know, maybe the the party people of party loyalty look we're out on a limb and this is embarrassing. Please help us out. Um, but Ken Buck, who I, who I love was kind of the last holdout and, and he, there's something the white house did. I, I forget what it was, uh, that upset him. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm voting for it too. So what, what, what's the, the truth about the increased powers here? Because, you know, what, one reason they say they need it is because this, this will, um, increase their, their ability to get the testimony they want from Hunter and, and James. And if they don't get what the, the testimony they want, hold these guys to account. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think a lot of this is more theoretical than practical. So let's, let's talk the theoretical uh, and then we can see why, whether practically it makes a difference or not. The theoretical is when Congress legislate, when Congress does hearings or any kind of investigation, usually under the auspices of oversight, in any other situation, it's not Congress's function to act like a grand jury or conduct a criminal investigation. So the law is that if they want to investigate, they have to have what is referred to as a legislative purpose for doing it. That is to say, they conduct their hearings with an eye toward the potential of enacting law to deal with whatever the underlying issue they're, they're dealing with is. Um, and that's how it goes for like 99.9% .9 of what they do. Um, impeachment is different because it's not about legislation. It's about checking executive uh, excess or executive abuse of power. And in this function alone, uh, among all the things that they're allowed to do, they are more in the posture of a grand jury than a legislature because under the Constitution, the predicates for impeachment are treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. So in the impeachment setting, they're allowed to investigate crime, which they're really not supposed to be doing the rest of the time. So the idea that they have more latitude uh, to investigate is that they're not, it's not a valid objection to say, I'm not going to give you like, like, for example, like Trump did um, toward the end of his term when he said to the ways and means committee and other Democrat then controlled committees, I'm not giving you all of my financial records because this is political retribution. You don't really have a legislative purpose. You're not asking me for my financial records so you can do some amendment to the tax code which is what they were pretending. You don't have to go through that with impeachment because you're flat out allowed to investigate whether there's been criminal and other kinds of misconduct. So that's the idea of why they have a wider warrant. Whether it really makes a difference or not, I wonder. Because first of all, congressional committees have very broad authority, even if they're not, you know, we see them investigate crime all the time, right? They, they pretend that they're looking at something else, but as a practical matter, who really stops Congress from looking into something that they really want to look at? And then I always say, Rich, with this stuff, that impeachment is a political process, not a legal process. So at the end of the day, you have to sort of cut to the chase. 
there is no way that Biden is ever going to be convicted, disqualified, and removed in a Senate trial, right? Because under the Constitution, um, you need a two-thirds supermajority, and obviously the the chamber is controlled by Democrats, even though it's Democrats by a narrow margin. I mean, you'd basically need like close to 20 Democrats to vote with the Republicans to oust him. So that's, we're talking about a situation where it's taken months for the Republicans to cobble together enough support to barely approve even inquiring into this. So the thought that they're going to take the next step and actually vote articles of impeachment to me is remote. And it's inconceivable that you would actually win an impeachment trial from the Republican standpoint in the Senate. So since Biden knows the bottom line is he's never going, he's unlikely to be impeached and he's not going to be disqualified and removed. What we all know and what we say in our editorial today is this is really about political accountability. And since he knows he's not going to be removed, does the fact that they're now officially in an impeachment inquiry as opposed to what it was the day before yesterday when they weren't, is that really going to make him cooperate more than he was cooper- than he was cooperating before? I doubt it. Um, so I think to me, you know, we could talk all day about what the legal principles that apply here are. But this is one of these things where the political bottom line is a lot more important than what the legal niceties are. And so there's been a lot of focus, at least in the press. They'll say, you know, they they don't have anything close to corruption or anything that'd be a high crime. The, the only thing they can point to is the firing of the prosecutor in Ukraine. And that's that's all wrong and a conspiracy theory because everyone else wanted the guy fired as well take on both aspects of that. Is that kind of the only thing they, they have that would potentially qualify? Um, and, and are, are they, are they as wrong as the press makes it, makes them out to be? I'm glad you asked that question because I, I feel like I should stop reading the New York times right <laughs> before we start the podcast, because I had the same feeling I had yesterday on camera, which is I listened to Jamie Raskin and my head was about to explode because Jamie Raskin kept saying, Where's the crime? They don't have a criminal offense here. They don't have a prosecutable offense here. And that's the Times headline on this is is another one of these, like, where's the crime type things. And um, I hate this trite expression. I'm old enough to remember, but I'm old enough to remember when they impeached Trump over Ukraine. And they had to call the article of impeachment abuse of power because they couldn't come up with a penal offense that was involved. So... In this instance, what first of all, as we said back then, it helps to have a penal offense, but you don't have to have a penal offense. As Al- Alexander Hamilton explains in the Federalist Papers, impeachable offenses are political in nature. And by political, he doesn't mean partisan politics. What he means is an abuse of the political uh, of the powers assigned to the political branch, namely the executive branch. In the Constitution. So what he says is there are offenses against the body politic, not uh, like Mm -hmm. normal penal offenses. Now, you know, impeachment serious business, although we're trying to make it evidently as unserious as we can possibly make it the last number of years. But you would think in most instances, if you are going to remove from the voters the ability to remove the president and and take him out 
through a political process, you would expect to have crimes. But the fact of the matter is you don't have to have them. That's number one. Number two, they're a lot closer to crimes here than the Ukraine impeachment ever was. There was not any scintilla of a crime that Trump committed, but the Democrats said, and there was some something to this, that um, the major thing that the uh, framers were worried about at the time that they put impeachment uh, in the Constitution was the possibility that the president would abuse his powers um, at the expense of American interests uh, on behalf of foreign powers. And they were arguing that the fact that he was leveraging Ukraine to try to pressure them into investigating the Bidens by withholding military aid was helping Russia, which, you know, given the, the theme of uh, the Democrats throughout Trump's presidency, that was a, that was a big to do. Um, it is true that the most important th thing that the framers were worried about is that a president could be purchased by a foreign power and therefore take the awesome responsibilities and duties of the presidency that the framers had created and wield them on behalf of the foreign power at the expense or victimizing the American people. That's the main, that's one of the main reasons that we have uh, impeachment. Maladministration is, uh, you know, another aspect of that, but they're very worried about be, the presidential power uh, being leveraged on behalf of, uh, of foreign powers. So here, you have that in spades. But the other thing is, uh, as someone who was a prosecutor for a long time, when I hear them say there's no evidence of a crime or that we're not close to evidence of a crime under circumstances where just a few months ago, there was an amazing revelation that a FBI credible informant was told by the head of Burisma, who's the guy that Biden went to bat for, in a sense, because he, he got the prosecutor fired, that this guy explicitly told him that he had bribed the Bidens $10 million. And it's not like we don't have any corroboration of that. It's true that you know they don't have that witness available, uh, uh, Zlochevsky, right? Um, but we know that Zlochevsky put Hunter Biden on Burisma's board, notwithstanding that he had no qualifications for, for that particular work, and he paid him a million dollars a year. And we also know that when Joe Biden left the Biden administration, when uh, the, uh, the Obama administration, this is in the indictment of Hunter that that, that came out a, a week ago after we did the, the podcast last week. It came out that night. We know that in March of 2017, Burisma slashed Hunter's compensation in half. And obviously, the reason they did that was because Joe Biden, as of January 2017, wasn't vice president anymore. So he wasn't worth as much to Burisma anymore. So we have tons of evidence that there's a bribery scheme involved. And then there's the other little inconvenience that the, you know, nobody wants to address on the Democratic side or at the New York Times where, where this rarely is covered, which is what were these corrupt and anti-American regimes or their agents paying for? The House has shown that $24 million went from these 
regimes or agents of these regimes to the Bidens, to, to a variety of accounts that were of which the Bidens were beneficiaries, and they went in a path that is very reminiscent of what money laundering schemes look like, in that you have all these LLCs that appear to have been formed for no other reason other than to receive funds. And unlike other transactions, multi-million dollar transactions, where money goes one way and you can see an asset going the other way, the only apparent asset in all these transactions, which are worth millions of dollars, is access to Joe Biden. And now we have Devin Archer having testified that what they were selling was what he euphemistically called the Biden brand, which was nothing more than convincing rivals or other government agencies that might investigate or otherwise harass the people who were paying the Bidens that if you paid for access to Joe, that would dissuade people from giving the people who were paying for it a hard time, which is exactly what bribery and influence peddling is about. So this idea that there's, you know, I, I'm fine with somebody come out and say, you know, look, they're not yet close to a point where you would indict Joe Biden um, for bribery because you can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You haven't proved to us yet that you have a witness who's credible, who's willing to get on the stand and say that. I'm with that. That makes sense to me. That's a good argument. Um, but to say there's no evidence, no evidence. Are you kidding? You know, so, so but that's so their story and they're sticking to it. So, so stupid question. Can one party think they're bribing another party that's receiving the money at the same time that other party just thinks they are getting the money because, you know, they're, they're, they're smart and, and they're influential and th does not believe they're they're taking a bribe. I guess there's a, a, a couple of legal principles that would apply to that is um, there's two potential crimes here, right? One would be bribery and one would be conspiracy to commit bribery, mm -hmm. right? So if you intended to be bribed and you set up a transaction and there wasn't a meeting in the minds between you and whoever you were trying to get the bribe from, you could still be bribed, right? You and your co-conspirators, because the crime is the agreement to commit the crime. Um, it, it, you don't have to commit the crime in order to be guilty of conspiracy. On the other hand, if it's bribery, you have to complete, there has to actually be a bribery. And I would say, you know, here's here again, we're going to, um, deal with the legal hair splitting versus the practical reality. As a prosecutor, you're always interested in what the law requires, but you're always mindful that these are jury trials and that you have to convince people. Um, and it would be highly, it would be difficult to win a bribery case unless everybody was on the same page about what the arrangement was. Um, I also think, you know, to, to, to try to sort of subtly um, fiddle with your hypothetical here because it goes more to the, um, I think this goes to the facts of what they would argue. Um, the, the comeback to the Republicans from the Biden camp has been, other than the fact that this was all Hunter and Joe had nothing to do with it, which, mm -hmm. it, which yesterday evolved into Joe had nothing financially to do with it. Which uh, also also I, a lie, but... 
Yeah, <laughs> right. But but an interesting uh, uh, moving of the goalpost yet again. But what they've been saying is that um, Hunter was selling the appearance of access, which is is something that's sensible only if um, you're trying to to uh, put some distance between Joe and Hunter. Because in point of fact, you couldn't make a $24 million scheme work over five years unless you actually established somewhere along the line that access you had access to Joe Biden and that that might potentially mean something beneficial to you. And we have examples of that through the, throughout the, the five years. But so I guess the question on their, on, on their accounting of this would be, could you have bribery if you induce the other side to pay on the illusion that you would be selling political access, but it wasn't true. It was just an illusion. And my response to that is, yes, it would still be bribery because you're paying for the hope of something. Um, and you're, you know, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for his political access. Now, I guess what the what Biden would come back and say is, yeah, but I didn't do anything. I didn't promise them anything. You know, whatever Hunter said to them, uh, yeah, there's nothing I can do about that. But I didn't go to bat for them. I didn't do anything. I didn't know about this. Um, and if you asked, did you take the money? I was like, he'd be like, well, I didn't get money, but you know, Hunter got money. I don't know what these guys are saying to the foreigners. So that's a tough case to prove. Um, but I don't think it's such a tough case to prove if you have a course of conduct that goes on for many years, you have Joe Biden um, periodically, and my understanding is it's a lot more than 20 times, um, but you have Joe Biden periodically checking in with Hunter's business partners to, to create the, uh, if it's an illusion, to create the appearance um, that, yes, you're getting access to Joe Biden. You have that very disturbing WhatsApp message where hunter says i'm sitting here with my father and you know where's the money and then a few days later the chinese come up with five million bucks um you have a situation where you know biden says to the ukrainian government uh either fire the prosecutor who happens to be investigating barisma um or you're not getting the billion dollars of financial aid from the united states and that's just, you know, that's what we know now. One other thing I'd say about this, Rich, while, while I'm on that, uh, on that subject, Congress is limited compared to prosecutors and how they can conduct investigations. So what they've been doing is, you know, they find f something funky in the financial transactions, and then that transaction triggers them to ask for bank records. If, if I were handling this investigation as a prosecutor, I would already have subpoenaed every conceivable Biden financial record, every bank account, every LLC, and I would have been neck deep in that stuff by now. They're doing it kind of backwards. They see something suspicious and then they go for that particular transaction and any records behind it. I, I think there was already enough smoke here that you would have already subpoenaed all these bank accounts. So I think the reason we keep finding these late disclosures of alarming transactions is because that they're doing it backwards. You know, you would want to get all the bank records first by now. Mm -hmm. But but again, again, and then we'll move off this. If if I'm Hunter Biden and the, these various foreign entities 
want my help kind of representing their interests and, and, uh, the U.S., you know, helping get a you know oil contract or, or, or whatever it is, or, or, or ta- talking to this official to see whether they can get this break. Why would that? What's what's the line between bribery and just you know representing a a, a foreign interest the way it happens in Washington all the time? Well, that's a it's that's a great question because the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to prosecute somebody for political corruption under for exactly the kind of stuff that you're talking about. And what the court has done has basically said there has to be a quid pro quo, but it's got to be a quid pro quo that, that uh, involves an official act of government. So for example, in the big, in the, was it McDonald? Was he the, the governor of uh, Virginia yeah. in that case, you know, he's getting benefits and he's using his influence with people who gave him benefits to get him. Let me get you a meeting with this guy and let me get you a meeting with that guy. Now, the evidence is he doesn't other than like, I'm the governor. Will you, will you meet with this person? He doesn't put his thumb on the scale other than that with the government officials that he's setting up meetings of his donors with. Uh, and he doesn't pressure the government officials to accommodate the donors. He just basically gets them in the door. And the Supreme Court said that's not an official act. You know, that's not all that is, is like normal politics. It's setting up a meeting with somebody who, uh, you know, might might or might not do something. Whereas an official act would be um, like I pay you a million dollars and then you appoint me U.S. attorney in Manhattan or something, right. you know, that would be a, that would be an official act right. much I, harder I, I to steer a to weapons prove. contract to you or. Right. Yeah. Mm. So tough to prove. Um, it, it uh, you know, bribery is, th- they've made it a very, uh, they've made it a very tough proof, but it's still at the end of the day. I mean, people get convicted of it and it's, it's, it's a flat out quid pro quo, you know, you pay, X and you get Y. And if you have proof of that, then you got a problem. And the other thing, Rich, we should we should just highlight, not that Biden's ever going to be um, impeached, but you don't need, because you don't need to prove a crime, a penal crime for impeachment, you would not have to satisfy all of the elements of penal bribery mm-hmm, in order right. to make out an impeachable offense. Yeah, it could just be corrupt. In, correct. In, in the, in the common understanding. Right. <clears throat> so, um, last thing on this and I'll do an NR plus plug and we'll, we'll get to Jack Smith. So <clears throat> you just said he's not going to be impeached. You, you mean you, you don't think the house is going to come back and vote articles because it was so hard to do the inquiry. Yeah, I make that mistake all the time. I I, I sometimes uh, in these conversations I say impeached okay. when but what I mean is impeached, removed, removed disqualified. So the fact of the matter is, I don't think he's going to be impeached, as in the House filing articles mm-hmm. of impeachment, because I doubt they'll have the votes. Uh, and I really think, as we said in the editorial, the the point of this exercise, if you want to be cynical, if you want to just describe it as cynical politics. They want to have a parallel corruption slash impeachment mm-hmm. investigation of Trump of Biden while Trump is being put through the gauntlet in the criminal process. If you want to talk about it in terms of good government and what the, the Congress is supposed to do, which is check 
presidential misconduct. You're making a public record of what Biden has done here, which is very alarming. Um, but either way, I think that's the purpose of this exercise. The thought that he's actually going to be the subject of impeachment articles and then a trial in the Senate just seems to me to be a fantasy land. Got it. Okay. So let me urge everyone to sign up for NR Plus. Great gift for yourself this Christmas season. Great gift for someone else. Great gift for us at NR. We need people to pay just a little bit for what they read. We believe we're creating content of great value. We know many of you out there think the same thing because so many of you uh, read our content. We hear from so many of you. So if you love what Andy writes, if you love what his colleagues write, we're just asking to pay a little bit for it. Not a lot, just just a little bit. And uh, er I urge you to join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So Jack Smith, so Andy, he's he's going to the Supreme Court <clears throat> to contest this uh, official acts immunity claim from Donald Trump and leapfrogging like the normal process, right? That you, you wouldn't ordinarily go straight to the Supreme Court on something like this, but clearly timing is on his mind. So what do you make of it? I think, Rich, that he's made a big mistake here. Um, and I'm not all that surprised by it because it, it, we're going to talk about it. We should talk about this a little bit more. The um, last term, last year, when we were talking at the end of the Supreme Court's term, when they threw out those convictions of the two Cuomo cronies in corruption cases, I remember when we talked about it, I made the bold prediction that this would mean Jack Smith would not charge Trump because the Supreme Court was sending a message that they, they didn't want prosecutors getting creative. They didn't want them to push uh, the envelope on ambiguous statutory terms. They made a point of saying that fraud in federal law, now that uh, they were not dealing with the same fraud st statute that, that uh, Smith has invoked, but they did make the general principled argument that fraud in federal law is a financial crime. It's not a vehicle for imposing somebody's vision of what good government looks like. And I thought they were conveying a pretty clear signal that, you know, look, if you're going to um, if you're going to have a situation where you bring major politicians, including a former president, uh, into the criminal justice system, you better have a clear crime. It better be like Bill Barr used to say, right? Bread and butter or mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, I, I want to say like steak and eggs. I, I'm now, I'm now <laughs> like getting lost on what is it? Um, meat but, and potatoes. Um, meat and potatoes, right. So um, but that was – that. I thought that was what the message was and I was pretty – I was like, look. If it were me as the prosecutor, and Smith is not a dumb guy, if he's reading the tea leaves here, better not bring a case unless you got a strong case. And then he brought a case which I think is very dubious in, in terms of the four mm -hmm. charges that he brought. So here's the thing. The, the, there's a, substa a substantive ar uh, issue here that's very interesting, which is does a president have immunity from criminal prosecution – for what are arguably official acts, which means acts within the ambit of his executive powers, which are very broad, right? 
it's a oddly enough, it's an issue that managed not to come up in nearly a quarter of a millennium, but uh, has come up with Trump um, <laughs> because he's the first uh, pres- ex-president to be uh, in this uh, situation. Although, as Judge Chutkin pointed out uh, in her opinion, which I thought was workmanlike, um, Ford pardoned Nixon and Nixon accepted the pardon. So obviously those two guys thought the president didn't have immunity from prosecution. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about immunity for a president. And, you know, it's uh, the Constitution, in fact, says that a president who is impeached and removed can face prosecution in the in the regular uh, court system and, and civil suits. So it's an interesting issue because the Supreme Court in uh, the more freewheeling era of the Burger Court found that presidents were immune from civil lawsuits for their official acts. And they did it on the reasoning, and this is a a time that we we indulge a lot more judicial policymaking than we do in the uh, post-Scalia era, right? But back then what they said is, you know, look, we don't want presidents who have to make very weighty decisions about national security that can deeply impact the future of the country. We don't want them making those decisions worried that somebody is later going to sue them over them, you know, over a policy disagreement uh, or, or the like. So they found in this case, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, that presidents should have liability for civil lawsuits. Now, they strongly indicated in that case that the case might have come out a different way if it had been criminal liability rather than civil liability that was at stake. But that was not a decision of the court. That's just dicta because that question wasn't in front of the court. And what I argued in the column over the weekend is whatever the norms were back at that time against politicized prosecution, they've been blown up now. And I don't really see how a president has any less to worry about in terms of of an administration of the opposition party coming in and prosecuting him over uh, policy disagreements, then he does fear of uh, civil lawsuits. I don't see that the incentives are any different. So I think it's an interesting issue, and the Supreme Court's never decided it. But as you just pointed out, the right here, uh, right now, the issue of timing as is at least equally important to the substantive merit of what we're talking about because Trump's strategy here is delay. He wants to get the case pushed beyond election day in the hope that he wins the election and his Justice Department drops the case, right? And on the other hand, for, from Smith's perspective and from the Biden Justice Department and the Democrats' perspective – All along, the plan here has been indict him, lock in the nomination. You get get, like his base is all whacked out. No other Republican nominee can get any traction. Um, That's what that's what this campaign of of uh, indictments, including the one we're talking about, has been about. And then once he's pretty much got the nomination locked in, then you get him to trial. You get all the bad information out, but now the audience is not the Republican base. The audience is the general electorate where Trump is unpopular already, and then 
you not only ding him with all the evidence, but at the end you get him convicted. So now he's got to run as a convicted felon in the general election. So I think that's been, that's been the plan all along. So this is all relevant because judge Chutkin, who's very much on the plan, Mm -hmm. um, has, has set this trial for March 4th. Uh, And mind you, uh, the government waited for three years to indict Trump and then Mm -hmm. managed to indict him right at this moment in the campaign. Yeah. So point Trump himself always makes. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. I mean, look, you know, he's the government took three years to investigate this. And what Trump said to Judge Shutkin is they took three years. I'm asking you for more time to we have to do our own investigation, everything else. Jack Smith comes back. And makes the preposterous argument to me that, well, Trump should have been preparing for trial all along because he must have known there was a chance he'd get indicted. And Judge Shutkin says, yeah, that sounds fine to me, you know, which I, th- I just think is, is incredible. But in any event, March 4th is the date that's set for trial. So the immunity issue is more important than any other issue to, ch- to Trump because not because he's likely to win, whether he'll win or not is, is uh, as we discussed, very iffy. But the thing is, the, the default in federal criminal law is that you try the whole case in front of the district court, the trial court, and then it goes up on appeal to the circuit court and then finally to the Supreme Court. There are very few issues where you're allowed to appeal pre-trial. Immunity is one of them because immunity is like double jeopardy. It goes to whether it's appropriate to have a trial in the first place. And the the violation is not only convicting someone who has immunity, it's subjecting them to prosecution in the first place. So you're allowed to appeal immunity pretrial. And that sets up a problem for Smith because if Trump can appeal this, which he's doing, the March 4th trial date might not hold. And the longer that it doesn't hold, if it gets pushed too far into the future, you're dealing with a Justice Department that at least pretends that you can't do stuff as it gets closer to elections uh, because it would influence the electorate, right? So it becomes a big problem for him. And as Judge Chutkin herself had to rule yesterday, um, it's not just that there's an appeal now that's complicating things. The way federal law works is if an appeal is permitted, then the case, jurisdiction over the case, gets transferred from the district court to the appellate court, which means, uh, Trump argued, and Chutkin conceded yesterday that this is, in fact, the way it works, everything in the case is frozen. So I'm sure that, like Smith and she, were probably hoping that, look, I'll put the immunity on a fast track, they have to brief that first. I'll get my ruling out December 1st, which she did. And then they can run through the appellate gauntlet. Um, but in the meantime, we'll keep moving on everything else. We got tre- pretrial motions. We can have pretrial hearings. We can get all this other stuff decided. And Trump came in as he should have. His lawyers, I don't think, have made a lot of great moves, as our Dan McLaughlin has been cataloging. But they were right on this one. They went, he, they went into court and said, look, We've appealed to the D.C. Circuit. You can't do anything anymore. You don't have jurisdiction over this case right now. It's frozen. And she admitted yesterday, yes, it's frozen. So nothing can happen in this case until it's resolved on appeal. Looking at that, Smith decided 
let's try to cut out a step. Um, now, I think he's making a mistake uh, for a, a, a number of reasons. One is, I think he's he's got a more hospitable court in the D.C. Circuit than he may have in the Supreme Court on this issue. And also, um, the Supreme Court likes to have the reasoning of the courts of appeals on complicated issues before they have to rule on them. So I think Smith um, is this gamble he's taking. If it works out this way, he's got a very good chance of winning in the DC circuit. If I'm him, I want that in my pocket when we, when we get to the Supreme court. Plus if he wins in the DC circuit, the posture of the case is Trump is appealing. And if Trump appeals, I think the court will say, we're not taking the case. Um, we're going to let the D.C. Circuit's ruling stand for now. If Trump gets convicted at trial and there's an appeal down the road, we can revisit the immunity question and everything else. But the court would not want to get itself thrust into the politics of the 2024 election. But the Supreme Court is always much more likely to take a case if the government asks the Supreme Court to take it, if the executive branch asks the peer branch of government, the judiciary, to take a case because the executive branch is saying it's important to the governance of the United States, there's more pressure on the court to take that kind of a case. So um, Smith is making it more likely that the court will take the case. Um, and he's talking about like doing it under circumstances where he doesn't have a favorable ruling from the from the D.C. Circuit, which I, I think is not a good look for him. And then the other reason, Rich, that this becomes really bad for Smith and I thought was the most interesting development of this week, the day after the Supreme Court says, you know, we're going to consider Smith's application, Trump team, we want you to respond by December 20th to his application to have us intervene at this premature stage. The day after that, the Supreme Court issues a uh, you know, it's decisions on what cases it's going to take in the next batch of cases. And they say, you know what case we're going to take? There's this case out of the D.C. Circuit involving defendants from January 6th cases, the Capitol riot cases, who are challenging the constitutionality of the obstruction of Congress statute, the very statute that is the heart of Smith's case. It's like the most important uh, in terms of um, potential penalties. It's the 20 year count that he's indicted Trump on the uh, obstruction of Congress. And there's a profound issue about whether the obstruction statute applies here. And not only is there a profound issue, it's a bigger legal reach for Smith to try to apply this statute to Trump than it is for the Justice Department to apply it to violent rioters. Um, so the Supreme Court has suddenly said, you know, we want to hear about the, we want to hear that case. Now, to me, the, what this signals, Rich, is Smith is hoping to get in front of the Supreme Court and only have them consider nothing other than immunity, which he thinks he's got a chance to win. But once you're in front of the Supreme Court, you can't tell them what they can consider. And I think the last thing Smith wants 
is the Supreme Court looking at the charges that he brought against Trump, the fraud charge, this obstruction charge, the, the civil rights charge where he uses a Ku Klux Klan statute from the 19th century, which involves intimidating voters to try to prosecute Trump for trying to get votes invalidated through a legal process. I don't think they're going to like any of these counts. Smith is banking on that he'll be able to get in front of them and they'll just, you know, don't look behind the curtain. We're just going to talk about immunity here. Um, I don't think they're going to like his case. And by asking them prematurely to look at the case, they could very well take the opportunity because they'll decide that it's somehow, uh, not somehow, that it may be intimately related to the immunity question. They can look at the counts. And I think what Smith's plan here has always been is he doesn't want to get up in front of the Supreme Court defending his charges until the jury has already convicted Trump, because then Trump is asking for the Supreme Court to throw out a conviction in the trial of the century, right? So it's always been, to me, strategically, what Trump has always wanted to do is get up to the Supreme Court as fast as you can and try to get them to look at these charges before the, the trial happens, because he's got a lot better chance, I think, of convincing them to throw the case out or narrow the case substantially before the jury trial happens. If it happens after the jury trial and he's already been convicted, it's a, it's a big lift to ask them to throw a conviction out. All right. So let's, even though it's a, a weighty and complex subject in itself, let's hit relatively briefly the fraught question of Section 702, Andy, where you have to explain to our listeners what is Section 702, and then you got to explain it again. And maybe like an old Baptist preacher, explain to them that you've explained to them what Section 702 <laughs> is, because this is a complex issue, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll try to make the first explanation. So... There's uh, the 1978 FISA law, which brought um, domestic counterintelligence surveillance under this special Fisk court, ill-considered Ill in your view. And then when there was this furor uh, post 9-11 over George W. Bush's uh, various intelligence gathering, they, there was a foreign counterintelligence uh, was also brought under this Fisk court in, in a, a way that's not very... Uh, Meaningful, as I learned from you, you know, you have intelligence officials go up there to the court once a year and says, "This is the kind of stuff we want to gather." And the court says, "Okay," you know, so it's not like you know they're they're approving uh, wiretaps. But some of our MAGA friends have concluded because the FBI has uh, behaved so abysmally, as you've written about and talked about extensively on this podcast, Section Seven Hundred Two, with its great potential for abuse, has to go. So, uh, is that is that accurate? And and what's your take on it? Totally accurate. Um, it, I, I just add a couple of things around the edges, Rich. I think we've talked about this before, but because of the controversy that you alluded to that attended the first enactment of Section 702, which was out of uh, Bush's very controversial warrantless wiretapping program, Congress has never enacted 702 as regular legislation. They've always put a sunset on it. It's usually five or six years. So, this comes up every now and again. Um, I think the last time we did it was 2018, if I'm remembering right. Um, and I point that out because there's always opposition to it from kind of a collaboration of, uh, it, uh, of libertarians who don't like surveillance under any circumstances 
and progressives who tend to be, you know, allied with some of these Islamist um, organizations. I didn't say jihadist. I said Islamist. So don't throw stuff at me, <laughs> folks. Um, but anyway, they routinely, every time this comes up, they always oppose it, but they're always overwhelmingly outnumbered. As you just pointed out, this time it's different because of the Trump politics. And it's interesting, Rich, that it's, I want, I want to be clear on this because I don't want to be accused that like we're tarring anyone. Um, the Trump people were divided on this. I saw that um, a letter was written to the House, and I wasn't surprised to see that like Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo had signed it saying we need this authority. Uh, and John Ratcliffe, who was a who was a big Trumpy, but who was the head of the uh, Director of National Intelligence, but also signed on to the letter. There were five people who signed it. The, also on it was Devin Nunes, who not only was Trump's biggest ally in the House when he ran the Intelligence Committee, uh, he left Congress to run Trump's media venture. So. These, uh, you know, he's a very strong Trump ally who is very, you know, who is pro 702 and says, you know, we have to reauthorize this to protect the country. Then you have a lot of people on the other side of it who are Trumpies who think that uh, the politics of this is this is how we bash the FBI. And I, you know, look, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm sure some of them may sincerely think that the FBI has so misbehaved that we simply can't trust them with this authority, which is, which is a fair enough argument. But as we argued uh, in our editorial, and as we've discussed a number of times, we don't give this power, this this surveillance power against regimes and terrorist organizations that would profoundly and do profoundly threaten the United States. We don't give this power to our intelligence agencies, including the FBI, because they're great, trustworthy guys. We don't like having to have this power, but we have to have the power to protect the United States. And if the Bureau screws up, in executing it, the appropriate thing to do is hold the Bureau accountable and think about whether they're the best outfit to be exercising this power. We can't get rid of the power because the power is necessary to protect the country. So I think that's what the argument is coming down to. And in the end, it looks to me like it's going to be punted now uh, really into 2025. So there are these competing proposals in both the Senate and the House, which line up kind of the same way. There's one crowd that wants a pretty clean reauthorization of 702, and then there's another. the other opposition, which is a minority opposition, wants to force the FBI to get a warrant anytime they want to get information about an American, which I think is crazy because the information only gets into the 702 database if the court, if it's, if, if it's, intercepted pursuant to what the court has already authorized. Um, Americans obviously get incidentally intercepted in foreign intelligence surveillance, but they also get incidentally intercepted in normal criminal wiretaps. It's just like a fact of, of life. Um, when the, the general principle is if the government has legitimately seized something, it's allowed to peruse what it has seized. And the only instance I can see where you would want the court to get involved with a warrant is if the FBI, instead of using this information for foreign intelligence purposes, wants to use it to prosecute someone. They want to do a criminal investigation. But in that situation, 
Rule 7 or, or Section 702 requires them to go to the court and get a warrant. So I think that base is covered. So anyway, so you have the, the people who want a warrant who are the minority versus the people who pretty much want to just renew Section 702 as it is. And they haven't been able to agree in either chamber. So what the Senate did to hedge its bets is it added a four-month extension to 702 in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is legislation they, they do annually and that they regard as, quote-unquote, must pass, right? It's, the, the, uh, it's of that level of importance. And I understand the opposition. I mean, I find it infuriating that they have these, quote-unquote, must pass provisions and then Washington sticks all kinds of stuff in in there that are that's unpopular and should be voted on on its own, um, and you know people shouldn't be bamboozled into voting for stuff they don't like because it's been attached to must pass legislation. I get all that, but here, what they're going to do, what the Senate has already done, is approve the NDAA. Um, so now it's in the House, um, and there's procedural. Uh, Michigas in the House, uh, it, it, to this extent, um, all legislation before it gets to the floor of the House has to go through the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee has a lot of people on it who have a trouble with Section 702. So what Speaker Johnson has decided to do is bypass the Rules Committee under a procedure that's known as suspension. And when the speaker puts a, a bill on the floor under suspension, which means the rules committee hasn't passed on it, the price of that is it has to be enacted by a two-thirds majority of the House rather than the usual simple majority. So what this means is Johnson's going to get Section 702 extended. You know, they'll vote for the four-month extension because they're going to vote for the NDAA, but he's going to have to do it with Democrat, you know, he, he's gonna, basically, it's going to be a combination of Democrats uh, and Republicans, which cut out the um, the opposition to 702. So they're very grumpy and unhappy, but that's what's going to happen. And the reason I say that it really effectively punts it to 2025, the four-month extension gets you to April 2024, but by April, the FISA court will have signed off on all the authorizations for 2024 which take you to 2025. So even though they'll, you know, if they let this thing lapse in four months, um, you know, you'd have some heartburn about that. But in point of fact, everything's going to be authorized up until 2025. But hopefully, um, you know, we can come up with some resolution of this in the spring. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.